Chapel, Mason City. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 32. The book of Ephesians, written by the Apostle Paul, 62 AD, so about 30 or so years after the cross, he's writing for the purpose of building up the church. In many New Testament books, they're actually called epistles, which means a letter. And so simply, there are letters that are written to either groups of people or to uh, churches, you know, groups or to individuals. A couple of them are written to individuals. And essentially, an epistle just means a letter. And so it's just like if you got a letter in the mail today. And that's why, kind of a side note, why we study verse by verse, chapter by chapter, because that's how things are meant to be read, right? They're not, if you get a letter in the mail, you don't hop to the end of it, pick out a verse from the middle of it that you like, and skip all around. You read the whole thing from start to finish. And that's why we're going verse by verse through this wonderful letter to the Ephesians. Scholars believe that it was intended to be written to the church at large, um, although it is addressed to the Ephesians. Ephesus was a wealthy city full of philosophy, idolatry, immorality, arts, culture, rivaled only by Corinth as far as the arts and culture go there. Uh, You know, very much, you know, like something you would see in modern times, the things that we would see today. People engaged in pursuits of wealth, and achievement, things like that. Paul has been talking to us in this letter about the importance of walking in unity. The last couple of weeks, that's been what we've been looking at, that there are some doctrinal things that all Christians have in common, and we can find unity in those things, and the importance of being in unity as God's church, as God's body, not just this church, but all churches that name the name of Christ. Um, being in unity to accomplish the things that he has for us uh, with the intention of us growing up into maturity, into Christ. Now, this time he turns to the subject of walking in holiness, walking in holiness. Now, that word, you might not know what that word means readily. You might think holiness, you might think of the movie Footloose. Remember the dad that was just always telling, uh, you know, he's like, don't go out and dance. Dancing is of the devil. And so maybe you have a negative connotation with the word holiness, or I don't know what you would think holiness is. Maybe you think of the holiness movement where people are uh, doing certain behaviors. But the word quite simply just means to be set apart. And so Paul is talking to the church in Ephesus about the importance of being set apart, not being like the world around them not being like they used to be before they knew Christ. It begs a couple of questions. How should being a Christian change the way that we live? Or should it change the way that we live? How come some Christians don't seem to grow in Christ-likeness? How come others do? We're going to discover the answers to these questions in today's message. Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 17, he says, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. Now, let's turn to the Lord and ask Him to bless our time. Father, as we turn to Your Word here today, we do receive it 
as it is the very words of God, Lord, and we thank you. We pray that you would open our eyes so that we might see who we are and that we might see our Savior. And we do ask this today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So there's tremendous ignorance in the body of Christ today regarding the walk of the believer, the behavior and the place of obedience to God. On one side of this error, you have people that gravitate towards legalism. They believe that behavior in their life and the things that they do for Christ, the, you know, the church attendance, the Bible reading, the serving, they believe that these things, as they do them, that they are earning favor with God. I call them soda machine Christians because if you go to a soda machine and you want something out of it, you just put the money in and you push the right buttons and it spits out the soda. Does it... Some of you are looking at, like, we don't call it soda around here. Sorry. So it's kind of a mechanical relationship on one side of this error where it's just, I do the things and then God gives me what I want. You know, I check the boxes, God gives me what I want. That's kind of a legalistic view is what you would call that, a legal relationship with God. Now, on the other side of this error, there are those that claim the name of Christ, but don't understand that there's any place for obedience. They say they believe, but yet they are the same as they have ever been. There's no change. They're not becoming more like Christ. They're, they're just kind of stuck where they are. And they don't understand the difference. Now, to get technical here, there are many that understand justification, but not sanctification. Justification is when you come to the Lord and you receive Him in salvation. You've been convicted about your sin. You know you need a Savior. And so you turn to Jesus and you say, I'm turning from my sin and I'm turning to you. You're my Savior. And at that point, you are born again. You're regenerated. That old dead life in you that you inherited from Adam and Eve in the garden, that becomes live. You have a new life inside of you. God throws the court case out against you, all the sin you've ever committed, and He looks at you now just as if you've never sinned and just as if you've always obeyed. That's called justification. And that happens when you say yes to Jesus Christ. But at that point, you enter into a process called sanctification. And the root word of sanctification is also the same root word as holiness. And so it means to be set apart. So the word sanctification means to be set apart more and more. So you're justified when you say yes to Jesus, but you enter into this process now of becoming more and more like Jesus and less and less like yourself before Jesus or like the world. And there's an ignorance in the body of Christ about this, that when you become saved, you actually enter into a process. Question, how much work does it take on your part to get justified? Anybody? Yell it out. Zero. Zero. Good. Sanctification, on the other hand, requires work. It requires your cooperation with what the Spirit of God is doing in your life. It requires your participation in the process. So this is where people are really confused. They say, well, if you talk to me about obedience, I think what you're telling me, oh, you're being a legalist. Uh, I, I just believe I'm saved by grace through faith. That's true. You are saved by grace through faith, but now you're brought into a process that you need to cooperate with, a process of renewal by which God is transforming you from the inside out into the image of Christ. And that requires your participation. Now to answer that question, why does it seem like some Christians never grow? It's because they've yet to get involved in that process. 
You say, I've been a Christian my whole life. Yes, but have you been involved in the renewal process? Have you been involved in sanctification? You know you're justified. You gave your life to the Lord when you were young. You went through confirmation and all these other things. But have you been actively engaged in this sanctification process? And that's what Paul's getting at in this message here today. He's telling the Ephesians that you ought to not walk as you used to walk, but you need to start walking out this new life that's been put inside of you. And then he's going to give some real practical ways to do that at the end of the message. So the outline's very simple. Um, It's just a three-part thing. And it starts with the presentation of the old man, verses 17 through 19. Then in verses 20 through 24, the position of the new man, if you're taking notes. And the last section of the message, verses 25 through 32, he talks about the practice of the new man. So let's start at number one, the presentation of the old man. He says, this I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord. So when Paul says, therefore, that means that he's looking back at the rest of the letter in light of everything that was said in Ephesians chapter 1 through 3, that you've been adopted by God, you've been given the forgiveness of sins, that salvation is by grace through faith, that God has restored you, renewed you by the blood of Christ. In light of all of that, he says, therefore, I testify in the Lord. I want to make an aside here that if this is your first time of ever jumping into the book of Ephesians, you need to read the first three chapters because you have to understand who you are in Christ before you could ever understand correctly how to walk in Christ. If you're trying to walk in Christ without knowing who you are in Christ, you don't have the resources to do it. You'll inevitably be a legalist. You'll be thinking that your behavior is earning salvation. Chapters one through three tells you all you've been given in salvation. That's your resources. He says that you should no longer, in verse 17, walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. So he calls the Ephesian believers to order their behaviors in life in a different way than those who do not know God. The word Gentiles, if you want an easy way to think of it, it just think of it as people who do not know God. And Paul says, you should no longer walk as people who do not know God. Now, There should be a noticeable difference between the way a Christian lives and the way a non-Christian lives. And Paul says it right there. You can take note of it in verse 17. You should not live like those who uh, who do not claim the name Christ. Now, I think this is already a really powerful word for someone today to take this to heart, to understand that your life today possibly does not look like it should because you're patterning yourself after the way they do things in the world. You're not patterning yourself off of Jesus. Jesus has something better for you. This is an invitation for you today to embrace that. Now, he says, going on, he says that they walked in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkness and, uh, darkened. Excuse me. People that don't know God... Essentially what he's saying, he's not saying they can't be very intelligent. He's not saying that they can't be, you know, uh, do great things, you know, as far as, um, you, know, uh, you know, exploits, you know, build great towers, do nice things, do humanitarian things even. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying that somebody that does not know God has never come into the true purpose that they even have a mind. God gave people minds to worship and to understand and to know who He is. And so someone that's never come in to a relationship with God through Christ, they've never discovered the purpose that their mind was created for. These people, in this sense, are in the futility 
of their mind. There's a song that stuck in my head, unfortunately. Don't you wish you could get them out? Some of those songs that you say, oh my goodness. Like if you just get like a Q-tip or something that's really big and you're like, you're flossing. You're like, like, get those songs out of there. But there's this one by, I think it's the Talking Heads, uh, we're on the road to nowhere. You guys heard that song? Maybe I'm the only person in here. Huh? Well, that's what Paul is saying about people that don't know God. Their minds are never going to take them to a place that goes beyond the grave. And he says, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. This is the state of the unbeliever. They're alienated from God because they don't know about God. They don't know Jesus Christ. They don't know how to be saved. They don't have the understanding of how to be in a relationship with God, and so therefore they're alienated. And so Paul says it it's, just makes sense that if you do know God that you wouldn't walk like this. Notice these things deal with the mind. Fallen man is ultimately on this road to nowhere. No comprehension of spiritual truth. He's cut off from God. doesn't mean they're not intelligent. It doesn't mean that they can't do things that look great. But ultimately, the one that has no fear of the Lord has no true wisdom. You know, the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you reject the very knowledge of God, you've rejected the Creator. You've rejected the reason you've been created. Ultimately, it's futile. Verse 19, this is the old man or the old nature's practice. Verse 19 says, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. Now, this is, this is dark, right? He says that the unbeliever are, he says they're past feeling, the ones that he's talking about. Now, what he means here is their conscience becomes calloused or deadened. I think we can understand how this is from experience. Like, you know that when you, when you do something that you shouldn't do, right, you get a, a pain, so to speak, in your conscience, right? But the more that you keep doing that thing, the more that pain starts to go away, right? Some people can, they can definitely testify this. They can say, I'm, I'm living in ways today that years ago I couldn't even imagine that I would have done these things. And it's a progression, It's very much like getting calluses. In fact, I have calluses. I've been going to the gym enough to get calluses. You can't tell by my computer arms up here. But, but, you know, and it's a vivid illustration. I look at it and I think about, oh my gosh, I don't want my heart to become calloused like that. It reminds me of Keith Green. He says in his prayer before one of his songs, he says, Lord, give me baby skin on my heart. (laughs) I want baby skin on my conscience. And he says, this is what happens with the world. He says, they sin and they sin and they sin. They develop calluses and now they can sin without even thinking about it. He says, they've given themselves over to lewdness. Now that word lewdness, is a, we don't use that word very often anymore, but what it means is it's a broad term. It just means all types of sexual immorality, all types of sexual immorality, but it goes further. And this is the type of immorality where people like to flaunt it in the face of others. It's almost as if they have pride about their sin. And he says to work all in uncleanness with greediness. So again, sexual immorality, it's a term for sexual immorality, the uncleanness. Their conscience gets so callous that they end up doing things that they just don't have any conscience about it anymore. And pretty soon they just become, they're flaunting it. It's out in the streets. They're parading it. And 
they're just gone. Their conscience is gone at this point. And it says with greediness, notice that last term, and that has to do with the fact that these sort of people will just do whatever they want to do just to get whatever they want, and they don't care what it does to anybody else. Paul says Christians ought to not live like that, of course. It's a horrible description of fallen people's perverted and self-centered ways. Again, not every person is as extreme as they could be in any of these things, but this is the road outside of Christ. Now, he says there ought to be a great difference between a Christian and a fallen man or a fallen woman. And so now he moves into point two, verses 20 through 24, the position of the new man. So he's contrasting. Notice the word, but, in verse 20, it tells you there's a contrast happening. But you have not so learned Christ. But you, in contrast, Christian, person that calls upon the name of Jesus, you are not darkened in your understanding. You are not alienated from God. You are not ignorant when it comes to the things of God. You have a new life inside of you. You have a new heart that's inside of you. He says, but you... but you have not so learned Christ. And Paul words that there intentionally the way he does. You can know about Meredith Wilson, but you can't know Meredith Wilson because he's dead. Recently, I was in the hospital with my grandmother. She just passed here a few days ago. And as my family would sit in there, we, we were all sitting in there, we would talk about my grandmother, and you could tell when you listened to people that were talking, you could say, they knew her. And then the doctor would come in, and he would be like, ma'am, can you hear me? You know, like how they do that. And you can tell they just don't know her, you know, the way they talk. They know about her. They can tell you the medicine she's on. They can tell you, the, you know, what's happening. But there's a, there's a vast difference between knowing somebody and knowing about somebody. And that's what Paul's saying here. Essentially, Paul's saying, you didn't learn Christ that way to walk in a way that's contrary to who he is. That's not how you learn Christ. There's a great importance to know the God of the Word and not just know the Word of God. There are people that have their minds chalked full of the Word of God, but don't know God. They don't walk with Him. They don't know Jesus. But Paul says the Ephesians do. You didn't learn Christ like that. Verse 21, If indeed you've heard Him and been taught by Him, it's kind of saying, if indeed you've heard the gospel, you've been born again, you, you know who he is, you're saved, right? Now, this new man, new woman in you has been educated in Christ, not just about Christ. The second thing, the old corrupt nature has been put off. Look at verse 22. He says that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. This is the state of the new man. The old man has been put off. When you said yes to Jesus Christ, that old dead nature that you inherited from Adam and Eve that came from the Garden of Eden, the sinful nature, they call that the old man or the old nature or the sin nature, that is no longer dominant over your life. That's been put out of the position of dominance. You've been, uh, that's been put off. He, Paul's saying that is a fact. 
The term refers to everything a person is before being born again. The term put off is kind of like when you take off a dirty garment. Last night I got home and I was very pleased to take off my shirt because it just did not smell good. You know, my wife works at Pasta Bella and sometimes when she comes home from the restaurant, you say, you want a bit, it stinks like a restaurant in here, you know, and maybe you have some, you're thinking, oh, I need to do laundry. Uh, But that's the idea here is that your old nature is like this stinky old garment that gets thrown off when you say yes to Jesus Christ. This old nature, it grows corrupt, verse 22, according to the deceitful lusts. This old nature that you inherited from Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden that is alive and well in you and dominating your life if you're not in Christ, that thing keeps growing corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. Now, the word lust is the word epithumia, and it means over-desire. There are good desires. There are good desires that end up getting perverted, and that's the idea of a deceitful lust. It's like, so the desire for food, that's a good desire. But if I overeat continuously until I put my health in jeopardy, then that's an over-desire, and that would become uh, sinful. The desire for sex, that's a good thing. You need that in a marriage. Um, you know, it has a purpose of love and, and different things and connecting, but an over-desire for it leads to fornication, having sex out of marriage, all these other things. Desire for fun, it's a great thing. You should go and relax, but an over-desire for fun, it's like, you know, we can't get you out of Adventureland. You just want to ride the roller coaster all day. We're like, you got to work, dude. You're getting fired. I mean, you got a phone call from your boss while you're here. Can't you get off the tornado? You know what I mean? Over-desire for fun, you know? See, over-desires, and that's what he's talking about. Notice that he calls these desires deceitful. This is why lusts are deceitful. And see if you could relate with this. If I have a desire so bad for something and then I get it, it it never does what it promises to do, right? Those of you that have been involved maybe with drugs and alcohol in your life, you know how that goes. You get high and then you can't get high anymore you know, and uh, then you're just, you know, trying to keep yourself afloat, and uh, it's just, it's, you're chasing the dragon is what they call that, you know what I mean? But all lusts work like that. If I have the lust for the, I say, I just love food, man, you can't make food good enough for me. And he says, that's the way people that are, that's the old nature, that's the way they live. They're constantly trying to feed these lusts, and they're constantly dissatisfied because they are constantly coming up empty. He says, you ought to not live like that as a Christian. Now, those are the first two things, position of the new man. They've been Christ-educated, old corrupt nature has been put off. Next, verse 23, the spirit of the mind has been renewed. Verse 23, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Take notice of the words there. It's not just that you've been renewed in your mind. It's in the spirit of your mind. There's a part of your mind that informs your thoughts, your affections, your desires. When you become a Christian, this spirit of your mind, it becomes renewed. You have new desires. You have new affections, new goals, new aspirations, all these different things. That spirit of your mind, that's the part where you have communication with God. This is, it says God is spirit. This is where God connects with you is into this place. This is where you're informed by God. And that's been renewed when you come to Christ, when you become a new creation. He's put new life there, and this results in new attitudes, new actions, and affections. Praise the Lord, by the way, right? 
I used to have some pretty stupid desires in life, you know, to be honest, pretty stupid affections, you know, but I praise the Lord that he put this new life inside of me. He made me crave him and holiness and goodness and things like that. When I first got saved, I was so craving family, you know, like, because I didn't really experience much of that when I was young. And so what I did was I sat and I watched the secret, the sweet life of Zach and Cody. <laughs> I don't know. It's some silly show on Disney. And I'm telling you, man, I used to ball my, <laughs> I'm just being transparent. I used to ball my eyes out and sit there and watch like Cosby show and be like, oh, Theo, you know, he's going to college, you know. And it was weird though. Like I had all this craving for like something wholesome and good. And I was like, how do you get a hold of that? Well, you watch Cosby's, <laughs> you know, the time where Rudy and Peter make the grape juice in the juicer and the, the whole kitchen's got grape juice all over. Oh, Rudy, you know. Oh my gosh. Somebody's going to use this against me. Good night. As these things are true, we're to be cooperating with them. You know, the old man cast off, we're to be cooperating with that. When I see my old nature, this, let me, this is, might be confusing to you because I'm using these things like past tense. You say, when I became a Christian, the old man was put off. Why do I still sin all the time? Good question. Positionally, it's been put off. Practically, you need to put it off. Try to reconcile those things in your mind. As far as God is, sees you, he sees you as a new creation in Christ. This new life inside of you that's living in you is righteous. It's holy. But you've got these old habits. Your body has been trained by its flesh desires, by the enemy and all these things. So the thing is, is I've thrown that dirty garment off. Christ threw it off. God took that garment. He threw it off. And that's how he sees me. But the thing is, is that stinky old garment wants to cling to me. And I have to keep saying, you know what? This is part of my old nature. I got to take this thing off. I got to cooperate. It's, it's not fake it till you make it. It's be who you are, even though it doesn't feel like it. There's a difference between those two things. They're fundamentally different. Same thing with renewal. I need to participate in the renewal process. And that's where we're going to end up. I'm going to talk to you a little bit about how that can, how we can be involved with that. So, first of all, the man knows the truth. He knows Jesus, the new man, new woman, the old corrupt nature's been put off like a dirty garment. Third, being renewed in the spirit of the mind. Spirit of the mind has been renewed and is being renewed. Next point, verse 24, the new nature has been put on. And he says, and that you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. This new man, when you become a Christian, you are a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if you know it, you could say it with me. Um, but do you, does anybody know? Yeah, I'm a new creation in Christ. Yeah, the old is past, the new's come. Anybody in Christ is a new creation. He has literally put a new life inside of you. Before you came to Christ, you were a different, you know, almost like a different species, right? You were a, you were a human that was spiritually dead. But when you come to Christ, now you're a human that is spiritually alive. And that life that's put inside of you is righteous and holy, you say, that explains this conflict that's going on inside of me all the time. 
That exactly explains that conflict. See, before, your conscience was so callous, you just sinned, no, no problem. But now that you have the new life of God inside of you, now there's a conflict. It's like you got a new roommate, and uh, that roommate wants to keep everything clean, but you're dirty, <laughs> you know? And so you guys are always fighting all the time. You're like, uh, there's new roommates trying to, like, remodel the house and, and you know, keep everything spotless. And, and, and you're like, oh, man, can't you just let me be? And, and you're going through this conflict all the time because that new life is inside of you that you put on that new man which is created according to God. So this new man, the old man's put off, the mind has been renewed, and the new man has been put on, and you need to cooperate with these things. Just as much as throughout my day, I need to say, oh, I got to take that off. That's part of the old man. Just as much as that, I got to put on the new man. I don't just stop doing certain things. I replace them with the things that Christ has called me to do, right? No. Man knows the truth, knows Jesus, old corrupt nature off, being renewed in the spirit of the mind, new nature put on. Last point, verse 25 through 32, the practice of the new man. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. It's practical applications right here for the new man, the new woman here today. First of all, they speak truthfully, verse 25, therefore put away lying. Look at the reason that he gives for that. Look at the end of verse 25. He says, for we are members of one another. He's talking about the body of Christ. How tragic would it be if a part of your body lied to another part of your body, right? It's kind of a silly illustration, but you know, I read that when people get leprosy, that they lose feeling. They have burns all over them. Some of them, the ends of their fingers will be missing because rats chew them off, you know, back in the days of Christ and things like that, because they don't have any feelings. These parts of their body, you know, although they should be saying, ouch, they're not saying those things anymore. They're, they're lying to one another, if you will. Silly illustration, but it's vivid, because Paul says that it's just so tragic for a Christian to lie to another Christian, to not be truthful to another Christian, because we're all part of one body. It's like the foot, you know, lying to the hand or the hand lying to the eyes or, you know, or, or something like that. You ever, you ever been to the buffet and you said, oh, my eyes were bigger than my stomach. See, your eyes lied to you. <laughs> See, it's dangerous when, uh, you know, when a part of the body lies to another part of the body. So they speak truthfully. Next one, they handle anger properly, verse 26 and 27. He says, be angry and do not sin. This is a direct quote of Psalm 4.4. It's one of my favorite psalms, and I'll tell you why. It's because I used to have a, just a gnarly anger problem. Gnarly, super temper. And Psalm 4.4 says, it's just like this, but it adds something else. It says, uh, be angry and do not sin. Let me read it to you. Be angry, do not sin. Meditate within your heart, on your bed, and be still. I love that because every time I would get mad, I would just take a nap. <laughs> oh, see you later. I'm mad. I'm mad again. I'm going in here. 
It's actually a beautiful thing. If you struggle with anger, I might suggest this to you. When you get mad, just go lay on your bed and just meditate. Not transcendental meditation. <laughs> Don't focus on your navel and try to clear your mind. No. Focus on Christ. Focus on the Holy Spirit, His work in your life. And as you do that, this may happen for you. This is how it happens for me. I get angry at somebody. And I go and do this. And I lay down. And I keep, I've got my voice that keeps going. But yeah, I'm all justified in this because they did this and this and that. And then all of a sudden this other voice comes in and goes, but yeah, but you're to be forgiving and think of how much Christ has forgiven. And then here comes my voice. Oh, you know, this. and then this other voice comes, but how much have I forgiven you for? And it goes back and forth like that for however long it takes. And then you come out of that situation and you find it, well, you know, my anger has been processed and dealt with, right? I used to be a violent, angry person. And uh, God's delivered me from not, not all of it, but tremendous amount of it. He says, this is how Christians ought to be. They ought to handle their anger properly. Notice that next thing there in verse 26. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. In other words, keep short accounts with God. Get this figured out before going to sleep. Because if you wake up the next day, if you go to bed angry, you wake up the next day, you're still angry. Anybody ever had that in a marriage? You go to bed angry with your spouse and you wake up the next day and it's still there and you're like, oh my goodness, can't we just move on? Can't you just accept the fact that I'm right always? That's funny because that is what you're saying most times, and you know it. <laughs> Where it says, don't let the sun go down on your wrath, that does not mean you have to force your spouse to see things your way before you go to bed, by the way. That means don't let the sun go down on your wrath. You get it straight with the Lord before you go to bed. Stop terrorizing other people. Verse 27 says, don't give place to the devil. This is how you give place to the devil. You go to bed angry, you wake up bitter. Pretty soon the devil's got a beachhead into your life. He's got a control uh, booth right there. He's got access to you. And what he wants to do then is he wants you to compound sin upon sin upon sin upon sin. And he gets to people through anger. So when you get angry, just go take a nap, okay? Process. Stop talking to other people. Stop taking it out on others. Go to bed. Dump it on the Holy Spirit. He will straighten you out. He'll deliver you. Next thing, verse 28. Does honest work to bless others. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give to those in need. In the context of a thief here, you know, obviously don't be a thief anymore, but labor. And then I like what he says going on. You know, the, the Christian attitude is to do work, not only to provide for yourself, but to bless others. Work has many benefits. It provides for your material needs. It gives you something useful to do. And it also enables you to help others materially. And that's what the new man does. That's what the new woman does. Verse 29, uses clean, helpful, encouraging language. It says, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Christians are not to speak rotten, unwholesome, slanderous, or divisive words. The Bible says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. In other words, whatever's coming out of your mouth is showing what's in your heart. And so, if you have a new heart, because Christ is living inside of you, then we should be hearing you talk about him, you know? We should be hearing you talking about Christian things if you're a Christian. 
But we all stumble in this, don't we? Remember the book of James? He says, how can salt water and fresh water come out of the same spring? I don't know, but they do. <laughs> James was at our house. <laughs> like, how does this happen? Oh, it's not fully renewed yet. Being renewed. Being engaged in the process of being renewed. Living in God's grace and His mercy. As He renews you, day by day, we fail tremendously in these things. But His grace... We're actively pursuing Christ-likeness. We're actively getting back up again. We know what he's doing. We know the process. We're grateful. We're engaged. Verse 30 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of you when you become a Christian. And in the book of Ephesians, it says that God's Holy Spirit is a seal, like the down payment for your redemption. The Holy Spirit... I want you to notice something here. The Holy Spirit's not a force. You watch too much Star Wars, you think, oh, use the force, the Holy Spirit. He's just like the force or something like that. Or you're, you're too into New Age and you think, oh, it's, it's the light everybody's talking about. You know, I go and get my chakras balanced and they talk about light and darkness and this is just the light. No, the Holy Spirit is not a force. The Holy Spirit is a person because you can only grieve people. He has personality. Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit. All kinds of other people refer to the Holy Spirit in the Bible as a he. He's not a force. He's a person. And he lives with you. He lives inside of you. And he can be grieved. And he gets grieved by all these sinful things that are being described here. When unwholesome talk, when useless things are coming out of my mouth, I'm grieving the Holy Spirit. When I'm failing to work, to um, labor with my hands and, and give, you know, and do things for others and bless others, I'm grieving the Holy Spirit, right? When I'm not dealing with my anger correctly, I'm grieving the Holy Spirit. When I'm not exalting Jesus as I should be, I'm grieving the Holy Spirit. When I'm not giving the proper reverence that's due to Jesus Christ and to his word, I'm grieving the Holy Spirit, and we're not to grieve the Holy Spirit. Is what's said here. Next one, verse 31, does not commit sin that causes dissension. These types of sins listed in verse 31 cause dissension in families, in the body of Christ. He says, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. These attitudes and activities ought to not have any place in the life of a Holy Spirit-filled believer. Bitterness, that first word there, it's a spirit that refuses reconciliation. A spirit that refuses reconciliation. Somebody's trying to make it right with you. They're saying, I'm tired of this fighting. I'm tired of this. I need to make it right. That spirit of bitterness refuses reconciliation. He says, let that, don't let that be so with you. Wrath, these are outbursts of anger or quick temper for selfish reasons. This could mean continual, uncontrolled behavior. Anger, continuous attitude of hatred that remains bottled up within. This could refer to what is under the surface while rage is what bursts out. Anger destroys harmony and unity among believers. Clamor, the next word, I don't use that word very often. It means harsh words, loud self-assertions. Evil speaking, this is slander, destroying people's good reputation by lying or gossiping. Malice, this is malicious behavior, doing evil despite the good that has been received into the heart. This word is a general term referring to an evil force that destroys relationships. This is grim. These things ought not to mark the life of a believer. Verse 32, then, finally, the new man, the new woman, exhibits the kindness and forgiveness 
Christ has given them. And he says right there in verse 32, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Now, some of you remember Tenderheart from the Care Bears. <laughs> he was the gold one. Be kind to one another. Graciously, generously, proactively doing what is fitting to meet a need. Just kindness. You know, I used to work at a hotel and I checked in a lot of couples. When they would check in, I checked in a lot of people, but a lot of them were couples. And at the hotel, you know, some of them had been driving a long time. And um, I worked at this hotel for about eight years. And, you know, handfuls of them stand out to me, couples where it was like, these people are so nice to one another. They're just so nice to one another. You know, like the guy's going to check in and she's, you know, have you seen my wallet? Well, I don't know where it's at. You want me to go to the car and go get it? Okay, you're so sweet. Oh, we're going to check. Oh, look at the pool over here. Look at it. Come here, honey. Look at the pool. And they're just so kind to each other. And you're like, wow. And then other couples come in. Oh, God, give me two rooms. I want to get one across the hall from her. You know, like, oh, dude. You're sour, man. The way you treat marriages, you're sour, man. Oh, tenderhearted. That's just being compassionate to others, you know. Just caring, caring about others. Getting out of your mind and looking at somebody and feeling what they feel. It's empathy and feeling for them. Forgiving one another. In the Greek tense, that's constant. Constantly be forgiving one another. Constantly means you're going to need it over and over and over again. You're going to need the people to forgive you over and over and over and over again. You say, not me. <laughs> yeah, you. Essentially, we're to treat one another like God treats us. And I like what he says here, and I got to tell you, I, get, I stumble on this one a little bit, where he says, forgiving one another even as God in Christ forgave you. That is saying a lot. Christ forgave you even when you were dead in trespasses and sins. Christ forgave you knowing that you would sin again. Christ forgave you even though you turned your back on him many times. Christ forgave you at a great cost to himself. Notice the past tense. Christ forgave you. He's talking about the cross. Christ forgave you. He took the initiative. We screwed up the relationship and he took the initiative to fix it. Think of what that would do to relationships if people forgave one another as Christ has forgiven them. He forgave you knowing everything about you. His grace, His love. He knew everything about you. And yet He still did what He did and He would do it again. His grace is so good. His forgiveness is also complete. Far as the east to the west cast the sin from us. Doesn't bring it up over and over again. His forgiveness for those in Christ, continuous. There's no limit to it. You keep coming to God through the sacrifice of His Son, Jesus Christ. And there's always grace to meet you at your time of need. I think some of you have a real need for that today. I think you need to experience the forgiveness of God in your life. I think you're carrying guilt. And I think you first, before you can forgive others like this, I think you need to learn about this yourself. I'm not going to say before you can forgive others like this, but I think you need to 
experience this forgiveness yourself, some of you. And he's willing. He's willing. You just dump it on him. And you can do it now. Paul says this is how a Christian ought to live. We ought to not walk like people that don't know God, but we've got this great life to live in Christ, right? Isn't it a great life to live? Grace for when you fail, a path to walk on for when you get up, strength inside of you, a new life to cooperate with that will just continue to grow you more and more in Christ-likeness. When you first get saved, you're justified, justification, then you enter the process of sanctification, which will culminate itself in what's called glorification. So day by day, I know he will renew me until it's time to go home. I got to watch my grandma go home this week. I was able to give her into the hands of Jesus right from my own hands. And I was able to watch somebody that had lived their life being sanctified more and more Christ-like all the time and, and in this process and was able to be glorified, to graduate out of this. And, and we were looking at her and it's just like, man, she's been glorified. No more sin, no more pain. That's the, that's the plan for you. Day by day, he will renew you. He'll make you more into um, what he's created for you to be. And it'll eventually culminate in that glorification, that glorified state. It's beautiful.